0: You know, over 10 years ago, David Kenneman and Gabe Lyons released a book called Unchristian. And that book took a long, hard look at what younger people, especially 16 to 29 year olds at the time, and especially those outside of the Christian faith, thought about Christians. And the picture was not exactly positive. They reported that these non-Christians think Christians no longer represent what Jesus had in mind, and that Christianity in our society is not what it was meant to be. One outsider put it this way, Christianity has become bloated with blind followers who would rather repeat slogans than actually feel true compassion and care. Christianity has become marketed and streamlined into a juggernaut of fear-mongering that has lost its own heart. And it gets worse. Because a huge chunk of the same demographics of those people outside the church and the people of the same demographics inside the church felt the same way. Not at the same levels, maybe, but largely the same. And overwhelmingly, outsiders thought of Christians as, in this order, anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical, like well over 75% of the people. And it was followed closely by too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, old-fashioned, insensitive to others, boring, not accepting of other faith, and confusing. And some of those things... Granted, misperceptions. And some of them maybe not a big deal, and some of them maybe we would say, not a problem. But the big thing for us to see here is that overwhelmingly their perceptions of Christianity and Christians are negative. And the skepticism that they had came down basically to this. We don't think that you actually care about, that you actually love people who aren't like you. You are the ones that are unchristian, not us. That's what they believed. And that's 10 years ago. And do we think it's gotten any better? If anything, it's gotten worse. And many people today seriously, truly wonder if traditional Orthodox Christian faith, not if it's true, but if it's moral. Is it moral to be a Christian? Think about that, That's where we're at culturally. And to be honest, I have at times a tremendous amount of sympathy with this view, with this view of non-Christians, because I felt it myself, because I felt like, do we really care? Now, I get that there is a sense in which that as Christians, we will and should be outsiders to the world. And that Jesus said that we would be hated for following him. And Christianity does teach things that are going to make us seem foreign, alien, out of step, and maybe even judgmental to an outside world. I get it. But here's where it gets hard for me thinking about those people who are Christians, who believe the same way, those who are closest to us, to me. Am I those things to my own family, to my friends? Am I unchristian? Is that really the way that I come across? And then I read today's passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, and things get really real. This is what Paul says. Therefore, my dear friends, have you has always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence... Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like stars in the sky, and as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you pray with me? Father, we live in a world of fear and division, of anxiety, We live in a world that increasingly sees Christians as a problem, not as shining lights with the message of your solution. And I pray today as we look at this passage, we would see you more clearly and learn to become more like you so that we can shine that light to a world in desperate need. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I read this passage and I think wow. It hits home for me in lots of different ways. It's it feels on at first glance like a jumble of very different things going on. But I think we're going to see clearly how we are to live and how we as followers of Christ should be lights to a world that needs it. And it starts with our salvation and and Paul breaking the categories because you know there's nothing like an easy uncomplicated passage to look at on a morning where you have less sleep than normal and verses 12 and 13 generally get the most press the most space in commentaries and everything else in this passage it's viewed as the hardest part i honestly don't think verses 12 and 13 are the hardest part of this passage In fact, I think because it looks like the hardest part of this passage, we tend to spend most of our time here so that we can avoid the really hard part of this passage. So let's start with what I call the easy hard part. And that's verses 12 and 13. And I start with just, I don't know about you, but what, Paul? I mean, let's be honest. Our attention spans are pretty short, right? TV, social media, the pace of the world makes it hard for us to concentrate for more than five seconds. So when we come to a couple of verses like this, 12 and 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, we have to stop short. And we scratch our heads and go, what are you talking about, Paul? Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Huh? It, it feels on the surface like either a blatant contradiction or nonsense. But even if we've never read Paul before looking at Philippians, just from the beginning of Philippians to now, he seems like a fairly sophisticated, coherent kind of a guy, right? And he's said some pretty compelling stuff so far. And most writers... If they're going to contradict themselves, they aren't going to do it in the span of one sentence. And it's literally in one sentence that it feels contradictory. They don't do that unless, of course, they're trying to get your attention with what appears to be a contradiction so that we would stop and think and ask the question, what's going on here? So let's give Paul the benefit of the doubt. We're paying attention now. What do we know about Paul? Who is he? What is he like? What is his message? And I think as we think about Paul, as we've spent over the last couple of years a lot of time in Acts and looking at his ministry and things, one of the things that we know about Paul, and in this he very much follows Jesus and what Jesus did, is that he breaks categories all the time. And I think it's fair to say that it's one of the major works of both Paul and Jesus. They break the categories that we normally make. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, who's in and who's out, who's educated, who's uneducated. And if I were to ask you, I bet you could come up with ten more different kinds of, or sets of categories that Paul breaks in, the, in a very short period of time. And Jesus regularly subverted the categories that people around him were used to. So, it's not surprising when Paul, who many would regard as his most celebrated follower, does the very same thing. In fact, we should expect it. In fact, as we look back to last week, Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, and we think about our salvation we realize that Jesus breaks all kinds of categories. God becomes human. The Creator becomes a slave. Life itself dies. And death is stopped, and Jesus is exalted to the highest place. Paul is breaking all kinds of categories here. Because salvation means far more than getting saved. But we tend to focus on getting saved. And I call this adventures and missing the point. Because what Paul is doing here, what most of the controversy around this passage is, is about how we get saved. We worry about how we get saved. In modern terms, I would call this the spiritual mechanics of salvation. Does God save us? Or do we have to work for it? Paul, are you saying both here? And it's confusing, because we tend to think about salvation in terms of, how do I get saved? And there is, of course, a very real problem with this way of thinking. Essentially, it reduces our salvation to what theologians call justification. That point at which we are declared righteous by God. And that's one of Paul's favorite words. It's one of his big words, right? It's one of the words that we see in Romans 4-5 where he says that God justifies the ungodly. Or Galatians 2-16 says that a person is not justified by observing the law or doing the good works which we ought to be doing, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So if Paul says things like that elsewhere, what is going on here? Clearly, he's not talking about justification. So think about this. We like to quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Great verses. We should quote those verses. But if we do not add verse 10, we will never understand Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Because verse 10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that is sanctification. The process of becoming like Jesus. We are or have been Justified. We are being sanctified and will be glorified. But that's another part of the story. You see, salvation is much bigger than getting saved or being in. Salvation is not less than justification, but it is far more than justification. It's the entire thing, the being with God. And what Paul is talking about here. Is sanctification. And arguing about how we get saved entirely misses Paul's point in this passage. Of course, there's a tension here. And it's a tension that's found throughout scripture, throughout the teachings of Jesus and Paul. It breaks categories because our categories are too small. And we don't like tension. We like things to fit in nice, neat little boxes, but Jesus doesn't do this. What does Ephesians 2 say? We are saved by the grace of God through faith. It's not either or, it's both. It's not something that we can start or something we can do. It's God's gift. It is not of works, but it is so that we will work. Not to earn anything or to get in, but precisely because that's what being in means. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And a careful reading of Philippians shows us this. So let's connect the dots. We need to remember Paul's earlier exhortation in chapter 1, verses 27 through 2, 5, and the example of Christ in 2, 6 to 11. I love that here at Village, we work our way through entire books of the Bible. I love it because it's really easy to pick a verse here or pick a verse there And voila, the Bible says exactly what I want it to say. And suddenly, being a Christian looks shockingly like being a white, middle-class male who lives in the suburbs of a large city in the Midwest. And the problem is, that for most of the entire history of the church is simply not true. You see, the danger of spending time... Of of not spending time in a whole book is that we can pull things out and do whatever we want with it. But the danger of spending time the way we do and looking at a single book for so long is that we can inadvertently end up losing the flow of it. Here's what I mean. We're eight sermons in to the series on Philippians. There's going to be 15. In my Bible, okay, Philippians is four chapters, right? That's it. Three and a half pages. Okay? So let me reiterate, I'm not complaining or arguing with what we're doing as we look through Philippians. I think it's a good thing, but it's a caution. We need to make sure we're always rereading. We're always looking bigger and seeing the flow. and Remembering not to fall into the same trap you can fall into when you just pick a verse here or pick there, a verse there. Because when you look in, de- in detail on one small passage, you can forget the bigger passage. And when the church of Philippi received this letter from Paul... It was read in one sitting, the entire thing, to the entire church, probably by Epaphroditus, who we're going to meet next week. And that means they would have heard the entire flow of what Paul was saying. They would have seen the bigger picture, and they would have heard echoes and repeated themes. And our passage today is connected to those earlier themes, at least for the last three sermons, starting with 127 because in 127 to 2.5, Paul is exhorting the Philippian church to live godly lives that look like Jesus. And in 2.6 to 11, he pauses and reminds just what Jesus was like. And now in verses 12 to 18, he goes back to the exhortation about living worthy of the gospel by being like Jesus. And if we don't see Verses 12 and 13, is part of that stream, a part of his larger goal, it's very easy to miss the point. And when we look at these verses, we see similar language and themes and encouragement to the Philippian church to live their lives as Christ did, both individually and collectively. Remember, this is a letter written to them as a group. It wasn't an either-or for them. What does he say? 127, live worthy of the gospel. Stand firm, striving together. Verse 28, don't be afraid of opposition. Verse 29, both believe and suffer. one, be encouraged, comforted, and compassionate. Be unified in the Spirit, because you are unified in the love of Christ. Verse 2, make my joy complete. Be like-minded in the same love. Verse 3, don't be selfish or vain. Verse 4. 3 and 4. Be humble, looking out for others, not yourself. Verse 5. Have the same attitude as Jesus. By the way, remember what Jesus' attitude was in verses 6 to 11. He was humble. He was a slave. He died. He was exalted. And then he gets to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't grumble or argue. See the continuation? The flow? How this works together? See, that's what I call the hard easy part. And now let's get to the the or the or the the hard easy part. And that's our sanctification. Becoming like Christ. And I know it sounds clever, but I really mean it. I'm not trying to just be clever. This is the stuff that sounds easy, but is so hard. And it starts with a study in contrast. Who will we look like? In the background, there's some things going on, at least two things, that I think we, as modern Westerners, can miss, but Paul's audience wouldn't have missed. He's using some contrast in this passage, and we see it especially about being blameless and pure in a crooked and perverse generation in verse 15. But that contrast goes a little bit deeper than we think, and he's using language to grab their attention. And the first we see is, are you going to look like Jesus, or are you going to look like Israel? Now, he doesn't bring up Israel overtly here, but they're there in the language being used. Remember, Paul's Jewish. Many of his converts are Jewish, and he gives clues. But it's not just Paul that does this. I want you to realize that throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, we see this connection and contrast of Jesus and Israel as a whole. Peter Lighthart makes a compelling argument that the entire Gospel of Matthew is structured so that the story of Jesus unfolds as it unfolds. Jewish readers would see that he, Jesus, takes on the part of Israel as a whole, and major figures throughout Israel's history. Basically, what Lightheart argues is that, that in Jesus, Ma- uh, Matthew holds up a mirror to the Jewish people. Jesus walks in Israel's footprints. He does the things that Israel's done, and he becomes the true Israel. This is what Lightheart said. In all the Gospels, Israel rejects her Messiah, but in Matthew's typological plot, or but Matthew's typological plot shows that the history of rejection is consistent with Israel's entire history. Jesus comes as the new Moses and is resisted, as was Moses. Jesus comes as a greater David, but is resisted by the leaders of Israel, as was David. Jesus teaches with a wisdom greater than Solomon, but many in Israel refuse his yoke as they did with the house of David. Jesus is a prophet like Elisha, offering to Israel, but many prefer Herod, Ahab, as they did in the time of Elisha. Jesus is Jeremiah, and like Jeremiah, is the suffering prophet. What Matthew makes explicit is that in rejecting these servants, Israel was rejecting the Lord who sent them. What what makes Matthew good news is that in uh, the God of... Uh, is is that the God of Israel refuses to let Israel's rejection stand. When Israel has done her worst and demanded that her Messiah be nailed to a Roman cross, still he will not let Israel have the final say, for he raises Jesus from the dead. And this is just uh, a little small part, because Jesus is called out of Egypt, just as Israel. Jesus suffers and is tempted in the wilderness, just as Israel. And you could go on and on. And this idea of Jesus, and, and harking back to the, uh, Jesus versus Israel, is sort of in the air. And Paul is making a similar kind of move, because in verse 15, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, five, And this is from the Song of Moses. Moses has been told by God he's going to die, and he's not going into the Promised Land, and the people are going to rebel. God's told him this. And, and Moses says that Israel is this crooked and perverse generation. But it doesn't stop there. This very word grumbling here, the Greek word is used in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament, for the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness ex, uh, uh, experience of the exodus. And so Paul is essentially saying to them with verbal cues, are you going to be like Jesus, who I just told you about? Or are you going to be like Israel, who grumbled and complained and rebelled against God? And second, he's asking them, are you going to be focused on self or on the Spirit? We're not quite halfway through this book of Philippians. And over and over again, Paul is encouraging the Philippian church to work together. He prays for all of them in 1-4. He wants their love to abound more and more in 1-9. He rejoices in chains even when some preach Christ in order to make life difficult for them in 15-18. to And he goes on to the passages I've already mentioned, and through all of this, Paul directs his thoughts, his instruction, and his prayers to the Philippian church as a whole. Right? Live in the Spirit, 2-2. Paul's instructions for sanctification make it clear that becoming like Christ is not possible when I am looking out for me. Especially when I am looking out for me to the exclusion of my fellow believers. I cannot walk in the Spirit, Paul says. I cannot be influenced by or follow the Spirit's promptings when all I'm thinking about is me. It doesn't work that way. So our sanctification is bigger than me and Jesus. This shouldn't be surprising, because if Jesus is God, and so is the Spirit, and they both glorify the Father, then there is going to be a push for more than me. If we are really saved, we will constantly be working out our salvation, Paul says. We will be in the process of sanctification, and that looks like Jesus in the power of the Spirit not our natural and selfish ambitions. And that's hard. Because I want to look out for myself. Because sanctification, though, starts with obedience. Back to verse 12. As you have always obeyed, work out your salvation. These are parallel. They are connected. Obedience is the beginning As a parent, I have always wanted my kids to obey. Makes life more simple. As an adult, I'm not always interested in obeying those in authority over me. Same person. Part of the appeal of the me and Jesus version of Christianity is we don't have to listen to anyone in authority over us. Right? And here's the reality. The leaders in any given church... Won't always get everything right. Frankly, it's easy to pick out ways leaders of any group, church, school, government, job, whatever, get it wrong. That's easy. We all get stuff wrong. And if you don't, please leave because you will be very, very disappointed with the rest of us. Paul says we have to obey. It comes with the territory. It's part of calling ourselves Christians. That's the hard part. After all, Jesus himself, we are told, in 2 verse 8, becomes obedient to death. Now, there's a high bar. That is what sanctification is about. It's where it starts with. But it's not just that simple, because what's the phrase? When the cat's away, the mice will play? And Paul says, whether you're supervised or not, you have to obey. Whether I'm there with you, or I'm in prison in Rome, whether the pastor, or the elder, or your wife, or your parent sees you or not... Becoming like Christ is not about what you do when people are watching. It's about being like Christ no matter what. No matter who sees. And that's hard. Because left to my own devices, I feel like Paul in Romans 7. Romans 7, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. Remember, this is Paul, not you and me. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Skip down to verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn um, has a, a statement where he says, you know, it would be nice if there were good people and evil people, and we could just put the evil people over there and get rid of them. The problem is the line between good and evil lies in the heart of every man. That's what Paul is saying. We've got both. Thankfully, Paul doesn't end in verse 24, because 25 says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That shows us something. You see, for all of this talk of obedience, we need to realize that our obedience is based on faith, not on legalism. And some of us, especially if you were brought up in certain kinds of churches, hear work or obedience, and immediately we counter legalism. Stop trying to give me all these rules, I'm free in Christ. And this is, of course, part of the objection that many of those people that I talked about at the beginning have the Christianity. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. Pastor Tim Keller, for years, pastored a church in Manhattan and had a large number of young people. And there were a lot of people who would come to say him and, and say, I don't believe anymore. And he said that his typical response was, who are you sleeping with? Because he knew what was going on was, I want to do what I want to do. And that was the root of the problem. But Romans 7, and Philippians in general, shows us that this way of thinking misses the point. You see, legalism is a problem. And if you think your good deeds make you better than others, if you think they're going to earn you brownie points with God, and somehow save you, then you are wrong and have a serious problem. And Paul faced this problem over and over again with some of the Jewish believers who he called Judaizers in various places. But there is an equal problem, and that's called license. In Romans 6, verses 15 to 18, Paul says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that the law has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Our obedience, our sanctification, is based on our faith. And it will work its way out. At the end of our passage today, Paul speaks about the sacrifice and service of the Philippians, which comes from their faith. See, faith is more than what I believe, what I think in my head. It is also my obedience. But if obedience wasn't hard enough, now Paul gets... Practical, meddlesome. Because sanctification is being like Jesus and living like Jesus. I already have to be humble. I have to be unified. I have to stand firm. We saw that in the last couple of weeks. But now I have to live like Jesus, who is willing to give up all and die on behalf of others, and I have to do it with a smile. You no, know, thank you, Paul. What does he say? Don't grumble or spread dissension so that you will be blameless. I do my sermon writing on Saturday. We meet on Monday to go over the passage and then I spend the week studying and thinking about mulling it over, figuring out what I'm going to do. I write the outline on Thursday or Friday and the sermon itself on Saturday. That's sort of my process. It's kind of weird for most people, but that's what I do. And usually I do it on Saturday morning. This week, not so much. Distractions and unplanned events on Saturday morning. Broken phones and dentists. Unplanned for me. Anyway, by me. Trips and a discussion about flipping a house, which took up way too much time. Frustration. Frustration can't get to what I need to be doing. I can't think straight. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Arguments, dissension. I knew all week what I was preaching on. It's not a surprise. And it's not the outsiders, it's the insiders. My family, that see that Romans 7? That's me. I see it. I feel it. I live it. I hate fighting, and I fall into it far too often. It's a pattern that you get into, a way of being. And I know I'm not alone. We grumble and complain, and Paul says, don't do it. Don't be like the rebellious children of Israel. Their job, be a kingdom of priests so that the lost world will see who God is. A world that followed their own gods, that lived terribly, that doesn't look so different than today. And Israel fell down on the job, and so those pagans stayed that way. And I wonder about the church, and I wonder about us. I wonder about me. What's my attitude? What am I doing? Doing and being cannot be separated. We want to separate them. Because if I could just believe the right thing, then I don't have to worry about what I'm doing. Paul says no. Don't grumble. Don't spread dissension. It's arguing, but it's not just arguing. In this case, it's disputes. If the Exodus passage that we talked about is any indication, both God and the leaders, Moses, were the ones that they were grumbling against. And it's not simply about arguing, though we should not be so quick to dismiss that but it's about stirring up trouble and dissent. Don't do this, Paul says, and you will be blameless. It's not the first time Paul used that word. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wants them to be pure and blameless. He just reverses the order, right? How? His prayer in verse verse 9 of chapter 1 was that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. What we do impacts what we believe and vice versa. We can't do one or the other. If we try to split these things apart, we will always have problems. Do you try to split out what you believe from what you do? How's that working? Are you becoming more like Christ? God is at work, but he works through what we do. And a good place to start is our attitude, an attitude check. Are we grumblers? Are we spreading dissension? I hope I don't spread dissension, but I know that when I'm not careful, I have a tendency to grumble. That's not being blameless. And that's not what I'm called to be. And Paul gives us not only that, but a second way that we are to be and live like Jesus We are to shine brightly by holding fast to the word of life. Here we go. Preacher's going to tell me to read the Bible more again. Fine, next, I get it. Feels like a broken record, right? Even if it's not bad advice. That's not what Paul's talking about here. First, we need to realize that this command is tied to the first one. Blameless and pure, then you will shine among them like the warped and crooked the warped and crooked generation but I think what Paul has in mind here what he's using this picture of Israel to do is to say Philippi the larger Roman world is this warped and crooked generation that you live in so let's go back to our world for a moment if I am blameless and pure if I do not grumble then what would the world see would they think me unchristian the Roman world quite literally was more pagan than ours Culturally, we Westerners, we sort of live off of the uh, benefits of Christianity, even if we want to get rid of the specific Christian beliefs. Compassion, justice, mercy. Those things come from Christianity. Greece doesn't get you there. Rome doesn't get you there. I've talked about this a lot in the past. Greek culture might get you democracy, and Roman law and peace don't get you compassion, though. They didn't lead from a desire to show and celebrate the dignity of all people. These are cultures that lived off slavery and class distinctions, and the privileges of democracy were not for the common person and largely not for women. My point is, if we live Christianly, not unchristianly, our culture is actually more primed, not less, than Rome to hear what we are saying. We shine brightly by holding fast to, or perhaps holding forth, the word of life. Well, language could mean either, and many commentaries argue that both are included in the meeting. Holding on to, or holding out, holding up, the word of life. And I tend towards holding fast, because in 127, Paul says to stand firm. And I think Paul is re-emphasizing this theme of, Stand firm, church. I know you're struggling. I know you're facing it. Stand firm. But that said... The idea of shining like stars certainly carries the idea of being a witness to the world. There's no doubt of that. But here's the part we need to be clear on the word of life in this passage is not the Bible. I am not saying go read your Bible more. You should, but that's not what this passage says. It can't be about the Bible. At least not as we know it, because the Bible doesn't exist as we know it yet. Paul is writing this letter in 60 to 62. Matthew is probably not written for another couple of years, mid 60s. Mark was late 50s to early 60s, so maybe they had it. Luke is not till around 8070, and John is anyone's guess from 8055 to 95, though probably in the 80s. What's my point? The Bible, as we know it, doesn't exist yet. That can't be what Paul's talking about. What is the word of life? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold fast to, hold up Jesus, all that he is. Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Caesar. Not the things that selfish ambition says are ultimately important. Jesus is. In Jesus, Paul says, we are reconciled to God. His spirit saves us. It is his work that allows us to work. Again, Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, chapter 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. Paul says, shine like the stars. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on, a sta- on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Sounds pretty much the same as what Paul is saying. Proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is standing fast to the word of life. We've got to remember that as important as the Bible is, and it is, I'm not downplaying it, it is Jesus that matters most. And we bear witness him finally our sacrifice boasting correctly the easy hard part the hard easy part and the wait what why is this in here part boasting can we do that didn't you just quote ephesians 2 8 and 9 2 9 no one can boast what gives Four quick questions, I think, get to the heart of this. The first is, why are we boasting? Yes, Paul can boast. He's not being prideful. What does he want us to boast about? What does he say he's boasting about? In verse 16b, that his labor wasn't worthless. His labor is not about him. His labor is about spreading the good news of Jesus. Jesus. He wants to boast that it was worth it because it's life. Because he is, in effect, boasting that Jesus has transformed the very people he's writing this letter to. One commentator reminded me that Paul told the Philippians to stand firm together, and he just used an athletic image of running a race. Basically, he's using an athletic metaphor. I'm a huge hockey fan. Last night, I watched Colorado College in Denver each one of them has one prospect for the Chicago Blackhawks. It's been a hard couple of years for my Hawks. But what I love about hockey players is that they tend to be all about the team, right? They say we a lot. And one of the phrases that I like hear the most is, the logo on the front is more important than the name on the back. And we are Team Jesus. That's why we boast. Not because of what I've done or what you've done. So when do we boast? Notice that Paul is not boasting now. It's on the day of Christ. When everything is put right, when the accounts are checked and God is rewarding the faithful, that's when we boast. When our task is complete. you don't celebrate before it's over. How do we live lives worthy of boasting? Paul speaks of being poured out as a drink offering. Remember, he's in prison. He could die. He says that he's a drink offering poured out on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. The Philippian church had, as we're going to see at the end of chapter 4, taken care of Paul in ways that no one else had. They are not perfect, but their faith is real. They have been and are sacrificing. And in the ancient world, the drink offering was the capstone, the final part Of the offering. Sacrifice is placed on the offer and the drink offering is poured out on top of it or at the the front of the altar. Once again, Paul is showing solidarity with the Philippian believers. He's pointing back to Jesus who sacrificed everything for us. And it's when we live sanctified lives, lives that are conformed to the image of Christ, that we actually live lives worthy of boasting. And finally, what do we do now? We rejoice. Paul is in chains, possibly at the end of his life. He doesn't know, and he rejoices with the Philippian church. He knows their suffering too, and he invites them to rejoice with him, to be glad, even in dire circumstances. The Philippian church is facing struggle, and Paul is facing struggle. Stand firm. Be like Jesus, humble, not grumbling, not complaining, shining like the stars in the heavens for the world to see. Rejoice. In Jesus, the categories are broken and we can become like Christ and boast in Him. And I wonder, if we did that, what would an outside world have to say to us? They might not agree with us. They might not want to agree with us. But the outlook would be different. And so as we close, I think it's fitting for us to stand together before the final song. And I want to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 2 to 6, as a prayer for us. Paul says this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.